Hello and welcome to episode 165 of America's favorite tech podcast, Greater Than Code. My name is Coraline Ada Emke. I will be one of your hosts today. And I'd like to introduce another of our eminent hosts that we have on the program today, my dear friend, Rain Hendricks. Aw, that's a lot of episodes. I am here with my dear friend, Jamie Hampton. Thanks. I was also thinking about how that was like a lot of episodes. <laughs> I'm really pleased to be on the show today with all my friends and particularly with my friend who is our guest today, Penelope Fippen. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank Can you, you tell us a- about yourself? Because we didn't do a bio like we normally do. Yeah, sure. So my name is Penelope Fippen. My pronouns are she and her. I am a somewhat well-known Ruby developer, and I am a director of Ruby Central, the 501c3 that runs RubyConf and RailsConf. For a very long time, I was a maintainer of the RSpec testing framework, but I recently retired from that to work on my new project, Ruby Format, which is a Ruby auto-formatter. Okay, Penelope. The question we always open with, what is your superpower and how did you develop it? I think my most recently acquired superpower is a extremely cursed knowledge of the Ruby programming language's grammar to the point where I can invent Ruby programs that most people don't expect to work, but they totally do. And I acquired it through building my Ruby auto-formatter, which led me to have this incredibly detailed knowledge of how the parser works. What are you going to do with that? Are you going to use it for good or for evil or for awesome? (laughs) Well, I guess good and awesome side is building a Ruby auto-formatter. The evil side is that I can now win any trolling thread about the Ruby programming language anywhere on the internet. I've, uh, I've literally already seen you do this with this knowledge. <laughs> I was going to be like, for evil, like, is posting about it on Twitter. Yeah, here's the most ridiculous Ruby program you can come up with. Aren't you surprised this exists? And then it's just like a bunch of letters and like semicolons only. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, basically. I guess all words are just a bunch of letters and punctuation only. Yeah. I can't I can't wait for you to write a Ruby interpreter using white space. That's uh, that would impress me. Sure, why not? I want to congratulate you for the first person that I know of to come on the show and immediately describe their own superpower as cursed. <laughs> <laughs> I think that is a first, yeah. It is extremely cursed. Like, basically, I, like, went into a cave, and I got cursed, and I came out the other side with this power that is both equally good and very, very evil. Do you have, like, so, uh, the Ruby grammar is written in a, specified in a file called parse.y for folks who aren't Rubyists. Do you have, like, you know the matrix where they have, like, zeros and ones going down the screen? Do you have, like, snippets of parse.y just, like, floating around in your head all the time? It's kind of like that, but for, like, Ruby files. Like, I read a Ruby file, and I can tell you exactly which parse nodes are being executed. So you, you like, you see the matrix, but for Ruby grammar. Yeah. So it's, like, the least useful version of being Neo. Yeah, I think that's totally fair. (laughs) And then binding prize, like, Tank, I need an exit. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I can see the Matrix in this one very specific way that mostly annoys people. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, the useful flip side of this is I can sort of, I can theorize the existence of, like, pieces of Ruby grammar that I've never seen before and then write them and have them work the first time, which is how I discovered that any valid right-hand side can go in a rescue clause in Ruby. So if you have, like, rescue and then the fat arrow you don't just have to put a local variable name there. You can literally put an entire class definition in that position if you want to after the fat arrow and then access a field on that class definition. And that is completely legal in Ruby. And I'm sure that would definitely make it through PR review. Yep. Absolutely. Why not? Yeah. yeah. So, so uh, it, it's like you showed me this on Twitter and I've been using Ruby for 15 years and I did not know that this was a thing because it's a stupid thing that shouldn't exist. Yeah. And, so it calls like the it's like syntax. The e there is not actually like a, an object or an expression. It's like syntax that gets like translated into a call like 
on like it calls like equals on whatever the thing is, which is sometimes a method call. Yeah. So, so if you want to go into the technical detail a little bit, I can absolutely expand on this. Do not. Uh, okay. I regretted that immediately. <laughs> let me let, let me get my whiteboard out. And, uh, oh not... no! <laughs> I have made a huge tiny mistake. <laughs> this is a Ruby interpreted design podcast now. I do have one more part about why question for you, though, and then I am happy to never talk about it again for my, the rest of my career. Uh, and that is, when you were writing Ruby format, did you find any bugs in the Ruby grammar or its implementation? It depends what you mean by bug, unfortunately. The simple answer is no. The complex answer is, like, 14 paragraphs of text about philosophically how Ruby parse trees should be constructed. So is this, like... The code is the spec kind of a deal. Like, there is no spec for the Ruby grammar, so whatever yeah. parse.y does is the Ruby grammar? Yes, pretty much. And my understanding is that makes it very difficult for people working on things like JRuby or other implementations because there is no written standard for how Ruby is supposed to work. Is that still true? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's completely accurate. I mean, like, for example, right? So, like, philosophically, I guess the reason why I'm doing this the way I am doing it is that there is no other implementation of the Ruby parser that you can just load into a program and execute, right? And so like JRuby has their own parser that is actually like a correct re-implementation of the Ruby parser, but it's in Java, so it's not like linkable. And then there's like the white quark parser, which is a attempt to re-implement the Ruby parser in C++, but that is not actually a fully accurate implementation of the Ruby parser, and they just gave up trying, basically, because they were like, there is no spec for this, it's too hard to get it right, so this is a good approximation for most people, but it's not truly accurate. And yeah, so like, the reason why no one has done this before is that working with the Ruby grammar is just really, really difficult, and like, an essential side effect of this project is making that easier. And you can't just rip parse.y out because it's like coupled to internals of CRuby. Yeah, so it's funny you ask because I just looked into exactly what would you would need to do to be able to do this the other day. Basically, like when the CRuby interpreter boots, it does a bunch of like global process level initialization things in C. So Ruby uses a stack based interpreter with its own object allocators, both memory-wise and in terms of the garbage collector. And like all of that needs to be initialized before the Ruby parser can actually run. Because like for example, when the Ruby parser parses a string, it allocates a Ruby string object, doesn't just like slice out the string from memory. And so you need like a partially booted Ruby virtual machine to be able to parse Ruby with Ruby's built-in parser at all. And that's why it's so hard to extract out and i'm at like the very early phases of doing that work so that we can actually have once and for all a separate ruby parser from the ruby implementation would c ruby ever switch to consume that parser what do you mean if you take parse.y out and you you make it decoupled from the ruby implementation then could c ruby depend on your parser yeah, it, uh, yes, it absolutely could. And some of the early conversations I've had with some of the Ruby folks suggest they might be open to accepting that. But like, this work is way too early to know whether or not that will happen. Because that could help standardize the grammar across different implementations, too. Yes, exactly. And, and in fact, you know, for example, in Sorbet, the Stripe type checker, Stripe actually dis decided that working with the Ruby parser and the Ruby virtual machine was going to take too much time for them. And so they actually forked the white quark parser and basically did a full re-implementation of the Ruby parser in C++. And the reason they basically gave me for that is they wanted an implementation which they had full ownership of so that they could make changes they needed to for Stripe Ruby in any case. And yeah, so it's like it's actually like a pretty interesting human story because like the true underlying reason why the Ruby parser is like this is that back in the 1.8 days, Ruby interpreted Ruby code just by walking the parse tree. 
And so a lot of the reasons it's like this are performance optimizations that Matt's made in the really, really early days of Ruby in order to work. And so there was no external pressure for there to be a linkable version of the Ruby parser because the language just wasn't designed for this. And so like, it's a really interesting side effect that like, because no one else was interested in the Ruby project in the early days of the development of the language, the parser has ended up being a thing that can only be used in the context of the Ruby virtual machine and not like on the outside. And so other teams are now building their own parsers for their own purposes. So it's basically like, if you want access to the Ruby AST, you have to first invent the universe. And like at yeah. least 10 different teams have done that. Yes. Yeah. Certainly, I would say probably less than 10. But okay. yeah, it's sort of on that close to that order of magnitude. And like, I look at this situation, I'm like, we're all trying to do the same thing here. Let's stop reinventing the wheel. I will just do the really, really hard work of pulling the parser out like one time and then we'll <laughs> I volunteer as tribute. Yeah, well, like, just sort of attitudinally, I am the kind of person where if you hand a really, really hard problem that, like, it seems tractable and no one is doing it because it's just hard. Like, the only reason people aren't doing it is because this is hard, right? And I'm like, but it's we know it's possible. We know we know we can do this with computers. So it's why not? Hard, do it? Why not do it? But it's also tedious. Uh, maybe. <laughs> so, Penelope, the question that comes to mind for me is, what problem are you trying to solve with this project? That's a that's a great question. I okay. So, in order to talk about this, we need to talk a little bit about RuboCop, which is like the other tool in the room, right? And RuboCop is trying to sort of be the Swiss Army knife, if you like, of working with Ruby source code. So like it's a formatter and a linter and it does metrics and it does like bundler rails and et cetera, specific cops. It does security, like it does a whole bunch of stuff. And because of that, it doesn't do any one thing extremely well, as well as that, there's sort of like Rubocop has this sort of like set of defaults, which I think based on my experience with all of the rails teams I've ever met, no one is particularly happy with. But it also exposes every single thing that it does as a configuration option. I think every, Rubocop... Every team I've ever worked with thinks some part of Rubocop's defaults are wrong, but they don't agree on which one. Right. And so my observation has been that sort of every single team comes up with their own Rubocop configuration. And they sort of do it once, and then they never, ever look at it again. And this can have a couple of side effects, right? So the first thing is Rubocop changes over time. And when it does, there may be new things you want to include or old things you want to get rid of. And the other thing is that like your team and your organization changes over time too, right? And so like the things you value about how your code works today might not be the things you value about how your code works, you know, in a year or two from now. And if you've got this sort of aging Rubocop configuration and people are taking it as sort of like a source of authority, that can become kind of problematic quickly, right? And also um, there's a thing where it just like yells at you when you get stuff wrong. Yeah, and I guess it's just sort of bounce off that, right? Like Rubocop can't actually automatically fix all of the things that it checks for. And frequently the error messages are not the most helpful about how to fix the problem that you encounter, right? I have had, since I started my project, but a number of more junior folks come up to me and be like, I'm so excited for this because I keep arguing with my seniors to try and change the Rubicop file and they won't listen to me. And I'm like, that sounds like you have a team dynamics problem. But if I can provide yeah. you a tool to solve your team dynamics problem, I will be more than happy the, to do that. That is, thing, that is something that I, I have thought about quite a bit. When you're establishing that initial Rubicop configuration, it's impossible to do it by driving the consensus because there are just too many opinions in the room. So what happens is the loudest people or the people with the most political clout win the right. conversation. And then that is encoded 
into this configuration file that, like you say, is long lasting. And yeah. there's absolutely a power differential at play in how that gets created. Let me put it this way. Does anyone know offhand how many flags there are in Rebocop? I know it's strictly more than a hundred and strictly fewer than a thousand. So what that means is there are more I was way off. There are more possible configurations of Rebocop than there are particles in the universe. (laughs) Yeah, I guess I yes, that's that's almost certainly true. And right, so actually like I the thing is, right, with this take, you could sort of reflect back onto me that if I'm making a Ruby auto formatter that has zero configuration flags, that I'm also silencing the least powerful people in the room. But what I'm actually doing is silencing everyone in the room, right? And like, the way I think about this is that designing specifically a code, ignoring all the other things that Rubocop can do, designing specifically a code formatter that outputs Ruby source code that everyone can agree is like, consistently formatted and is like something that could be called a correct formatting, even if it's not everyone's favorite building like that formatting is an extremely hard problem because like there are so many like little fiddly edge cases in like when you move things onto new lines and how you do indentation and like which constructs you use and like that sort of thing. And I found very quickly that actually once you have built just like a functional auto formatter that can take source code in and spit source code out. There's at least as much work, if not more in like deciding how the source code actually looks. And I think that to sort of come back to the point, Caroline, you were making that the loudest voices by consensus is certainly the wrong way to make those kinds of very subtle and hard decisions because you actually just need to cook them over a long time in like a single person's brain. It's not the kind of decision you can make quickly and rationally even through conversation. You need to look at lots of code. You need to format it. You need to see how it feels. You need to like actually do a sort of more material exploration. And I think a lot of teams assume they can solve this in like a single two or three hour session and the problem is over, but actually, and everyone will end up hating it regardless, right? The thing that I use RuboCop for, the only cases in which I use it are if I have a project that multiple people are going to be contributing to at skill levels that I cannot predict. And the main output that I, the two main things I want from it are a code base that is consistent. And I don't even care about the rules necessarily to a, to a really granular degree, as long as there's consistency. But the other aspect of it, and this is like a human cost, is I don't want someone to be nitpicked in a yeah. PR review over syntax. Yeah, so I completely agree with you. I think I sort of kind of have like a hierarchy of nitpicking that I sort of came up with when I was thinking about this. Like the base level is you have no tool reviewing your code and formatting whatsoever. And so it's humans nitpicking humans. And what will happen there naturally just over time is the people at the top of the like power dynamics will nitpick to death the people at the bottom of the power dynamics, right? Like I know a number of people, Betsy Heibel, I think is like a really good example of this, of people who've just gone on like killer Twitter sprees talking about this problem, right? And then sort of the next level up, you kind of have like the Rubocop universe where you have a configurable formatting tool where no one is nitpicking style preferences in a pull request because you either get like a check mark or like a failure mark, but you can nitpick people's preferences at configuration time, right? So if someone wants to propose a change at configuration time, you get that same power dynamic, except it's almost more ingrained because like there's so much authority associated with the configuration of a tool like that. And what I've generally seen, and this comes more from my work on Go than it does my work on Ruby, where they have Go format and GoLint, which are literally not configurable, right? The language authors decide this is what code looks like, end of solution, is like, there's no one you're interacting with on a daily basis where like that power dynamic can apply. Now, the sort of 
up level of that problem, right, is then it's like you versus language author. And that can be really, really hard in those communities. Like, I'm not going to sit here and pretend the people who are at the top of the Go community have the best reputations for dealing with underrepresented minorities in tech. But I think assuming you have like a good community like the Ruby community has, I think having those defaults be evaluated as like a community basis by someone who is like well-known and well-established is a really good way to solve this problem. Are you collaborating with anyone on the decisions that you're making, Penelope? I very much intend to. So like straight up right now, Ruby Format's not in a place where it's ready for all but sort of like the simplest of decisions, right? So like an example of a style decision that has been made is the one I presented in my RubyConf talk, which is like to do with like relative indentation to the parent of like if statements and string embeds and case statements and stuff. It's kind of hard to explain that in a audio <laughs> form. And to some degree, I'm working with Justin Searles to iron out uh, a bunch of these cases. Sidebar, part of my motivation for doing this project when I started it was Justin sort of started work on his project, which is called Standard. And Standard is basically trying to be wrap RuboCop and just decide the good configuration flags and then remove the ability to configure RuboCop. I was like, that's cool, but like, I really want a Go format like tool where I can have it in my editor and it saves so fast that you can't even notice the formatting is happening. And let's at least make sure these things are compatible. And so, Standard I completely derailed my train of thought. Yeah, I standard is configuring RuboCop and making it so that there are no flags, but you want it to be fast enough to work on save. Yeah, which you literally can't do with actually any tool that requires Bundler to be present. Booting Bundler takes somewhere in the order order of 400 milliseconds, and like that's just too slow uh, for interactivity. So you're doing this in C. I'm doing this. Somewhat in C and mostly in Rust. Oh. Um, I have programmed plenty of C in my life, enough to know that I hate debugging memory safety issues. And the Rust programming language gives you native performance without having to debug memory safety issues. Yes, if only there was some way to just not have to debug memory safety issues. Yeah. So Penelope, what are the major challenges you're facing that are not at the code level? That's a really interesting question. I think one of the biggest ones is that like the, well, I guess this is really at the code level in a sense, but like the Ruby programming language has no like implementation documentation. So I'm having to revert. I don't know if this is what you are looking for, but like, actually I'll kind of say mostly I'm working on my own right now and just writing a lot of code and like having no communication overhead and just building a thing is really nice. But yeah, I don't know that I'm actually facing any sort of like non-code level challenges with this project right now. Just time and motivation, really. This is something I'm doing in my spare time uh, and not like as part of my job. So you haven't, you haven't gotten any pushback or anything like that from the community? No, if I would say, if anything, the reception to this has been overwhelmingly positive. No one seems to think this is a bad idea, which is actually super encouraging. I guess one thing I did have, perhaps this wasn't a challenge so much as it was a misunderstanding, is a lot of folks were like, how do I install the gem? And I'm like, this is not a gem, and it will never be a gem, which is like, it's a community standard way of delivering software. But the reason I'm pushing against that is it's kind of like, a lot of people were expecting this to be distributed as a gem, which is like the Ruby standard way of distributing packages. And it's not a gem. And the reason for that is like a whole host of like implementation reasons that aren't worth getting into. But it was just, it was really interesting to me to like be building this Ruby thing and it being a bit non-standard and people having such this overwhelming expectation of how it would be distributed and me being like, nope, and I have my reasons and please believe me, these are good reasons to not do it this way and it will be fine, I promise. And actually it's really interesting because the Sorbet team ran into the exact same problem. So all of the code for Sorbet, it's a native C++ program that they could just compile to an executable on both Mac and Linux. And 
they also created a gem, even though there's no reason. There's literally no no technical reason why that needs to be the case. And they said that they did that just so that people would have it in their normal workflows and they could instruct people to upgrade and do like a bunch of those distribution things in a way that they're used to doing. And it was just, it was very interesting to me to be like, this is not the same as the things you're used to receiving in the Ruby community. And so I'm distributing it in a different way. And that, like, there was quite a lot of confusion around that. So, Penelope, how will that actually work when you are finished with Ruby format? Then other people will have to take that and adapt it somehow to a variety of editors using a plugin architecture? Or how, yeah. how is that exactly going to work? So, there will be editor plugins for all the major editors. Actually, it's really funny. People started building editor plugins like long before it was ready um (laughs) any any kind of daily usage so like i will say and this this sort of comes back to the response that i've gotten subject is like i was overwhelmed by like how positive the response was like there are i think vs code and atom plugins for ruby format already that i did not write Uh, and i have and I, so I don't I don't use VS Code or Atom. I also have no idea how good those plugins are, right? And so I was just like, wow, okay, this crashes on like a certain percentage of Ruby files today, but like good for you for sticking with it, you know? And so, I mean, the core of it will just be a binary, right? Like just like a Linux or Mac OS X binary that you download. There will be a website where you can pull updates. I will probably ship an update flag in the binary as well, you know, just to download it or compile from code. But like almost none of the, in fact, probably by the time I am done, none of the code in Ruby format will be Ruby. And so it doesn't make sense to try and distribute it as a Ruby gem, right? Yeah, that makes sense. So like OS package managers? Yeah, brew or like curl pipe to pseudo bash, you know, mm-hmm. that old chestnut. What could possibly go wrong with that? So, uh, <laughs> Jamie, you had a question. I do. I think it's really interesting that Coraline asked, like, what are the non-code challenges? And you answered, like, I haven't really had non-code challenges other than, you know, like, finding the time to work on this personal project or whatever, which I think is, like, one of the biggest non-code challenges that, like, any of us face ever. Uh-huh. And so I want to ask about that. I want to ask about, like, how have you carved out time for this project? And, like, how do you motivate yourself to work on some like this? Or, I mean, you've done lots of lots of projects. Like, how do you motivate yourself to work on these things in your spare time, like, outside of what all of the other things that you're doing? Yeah, that's a great question. It's a little hard for me to pinpoint exactly what it is. So, like, part of this is, like, Ruby format is genuinely, I think the hardest thing I have ever done with a computer by like some distance. And like, I'm loving bathing in the technical complexity. So some of it, some of it is that for sure. I think having a thing that is, is like truly mine to just like sort of pull on has been great. So like when I was working on RSpec, I was one of several maintainers. And so I felt some ownership, but it's not the same thing as having like complete and total yeah. ownership, which has been huge for me, frankly. And then like, you know, it really depends. Like if you sort of look at the GitHub uh, Moss, there will be entire months where I don't do anything and it's fine. And then I'll have like months where I write literally thousands of lines of Rust code. And so my personal motivation definitely swings. Like I don't want to get super far into it, right? But like I also sort of like medically and socially transitioned over the last nine months, and that has been part of the development work. Like there have been days where I've just been like, uh, you know, hormones too overwhelming. I'm gonna sleep now instead of working on Ruby format. And so like it's really variable to be honest with you, and a lot of it just depends on my mood and whether or not I feel like attacking the problem today but it's like a lot of fun penelope you were saying that you really haven't gotten pushback on your plans for ruby format mm-hmm. and i was wondering if you could maybe try to elaborate on what you attribute that to yeah penelope's a superstar and everyone wants to do what she says yes and what else <laughs> <laughs> if i were to guess 
it feels so i mean i can't tell what what's in other people's heads right but i i can tell you why i wanted to do this the really the i've been thinking about a tool of this form for close to five years now i've been thinking about building something like this for like actually quite some time and the reason i never really got started is that like i didn't feel any sort of like pressure or need because like the ruby community sort of uh, had consensus on rubocop and there was like no other there was no other tooling being developed in this space right like literally no one was doing anything and then last year at rubyconf justin came along and was like i'm gonna build standard and here's why i think it's a good idea and i was like okay this is a somewhat personal story i was like i can't live with the idea that we are all using rubocop as like the final formatting thing because like the way rubocop interacts with the ruby parser it just can't do the level of detail i want a formatter to be able to do this is also like my deep and personal need for perfection but so like i've been thinking about what a tool of this form would look like for as i said about five years now it was really inspired by when i saw go format working so when i first worked in the go programming language and like if you've not ever worked in the Go programming language, basically the out-of-the-box editor toolchains all set up auto-format on save. And you save, and your file just snaps into place. Like, the code just becomes correct. And it's this absolutely beautiful feeling. It's kind of like little dopamine hits every time you save a file. And I know folks in the Go programming language who have sort of said, like, for me, if I'm coming to another programming language now, having a tool like this is absolutely table stakes. Because like, I don't know how folks are like laying out their source code in those languages. And if there's a tool that does it for me, that's so much the better. One of my actually biggest people who's been cheering me on is a friend of mine who's like a very experienced Go developer who occasionally has to touch Ruby. And he's like, I always get style nitpicks on my pull requests. Please make them go away. And I was like, I will absolutely do that. And so like, I think if I were to sort of point at why the response has been so positive, it's that there actually isn't another tool in this class for Ruby today. Rubicop is close, but it's not doing quite the same thing. Or it's certainly, it's not doing what I'm promising my tool will do when it's done, right? And yeah. there's, a, there's an open question as to whether I can do that. I think I can. But the other thing I should say is it's not certain, right? And so like, Partially, I think this is also a hype cycle, and I've clearly just hit on a thing people really, really want that I have really, really wanted for a long time. And now I'm I'm actually dragging myself over the hot coals of working with the Ruby parser to do it. I think that work is great, greatly appreciated, Penelope. I know I'm personally very excited about this because I did work in Go um, about a year ago, and Go is another language that makes me happy. I know it's really good at some stuff, but I just don't enjoy writing it. But Go format was magic, and it made learning the language so much easier. Yeah, and that's part of it as well, right? It's like one of the things I observed with my working in Go, actually, and you sort of hit the nail on the head, is learning the language. Is like the first time I would write some code, right? I would lay it out and fire a pull request up and it would fail CI for formatting reasons or linting reasons, right? Because they also have a standard linter built in. And I would slowly learn better how to write Go code to the point where I was almost always doing what the formatter or the linter would want before it even ran. That as a teaching mechanism, I think is really interesting. And we don't have tooling like that in Ruby. And like, I'm sort of taking on the grand challenge of billing not just the formatting tool, I want to ideate and build that teaching tool in the future at some point as well. I have maybe like a, a somewhat heretical view on this, which is that the fact that we're even writing source code in text files as sequences of characters that then need to be formatted <laughs> is a weird and unfortunate historical accident. Yes. That's it. That's the whole take. <laughs> Well, okay, let me ask you a question. What would you have us do instead? I want an ergonomic way to work directly with ASTs. Cool. Would you preserve the existing programming languages, or would you have... No, they're all first up against the wall. 
Okay, so so we, we would we would have to have a new programming language explicitly designed with an ergonomic AST. I mean, it's not going to happen, but yes, that's the thing that would never happen. Cool. So so Rain just reinvented Lisp. The funny thing about Lisp is that it was originally supposed to be the end language that they were going to like write an ergonomic thing on top of. Yeah, I would put to you that if Ruby developers were forced to hand edit Ruby ASTs instead of Ruby source code files, there is no way to make that more ergonomic. No, that would be terrible, but I think something can be done that's better. Oh, yeah. I just don't know what. You can theorize programming languages, I think, where that would be the case, but taking existing ones and trying to make that happen would be extremely painful. For example, right, the way C and C++ and... Ruby and a bunch of other programming languages parse like list-like or hash-like structures is with tail recursion. And then you have to teach a whole generation of programmers how to do tail recursion. I told you it was heretical. <laughs> That's true. You did label your take. Thank you. <laughs> I like this take. It's a take I've had in the past as well. I just think that the practical way we get there is unfathomably difficult. And like starts in CS research in universities and takes 50 years to leave that space. There is a little bit of work that's being done with editors that actually sort of guide the code as you write it rather than waiting until you write a bunch of stuff and then save it. So like we'll put the cursor where it needs to be for the thing you're currently doing. Yep. I believe I would hate that a lot. Penelope, what else do you want to talk about? So I had one thing I think is potentially interesting. I don't have answers here. I have questions uh, more than anything. So at the Ruby Central Directors Retreat, right before RubyConf, we were talking a little bit about how we were lamenting the death of regional Ruby conferences. It really feels like they've all disappeared. And I don't know if this is also happening in other programming languages that have been around for as long as we have, or what's going on there we had some sort of theories but my question is is having regional ruby conferences a good thing in the first place and if it is what can we do to bring them back i can say um for a lot of people regional ruby conferences can launch their speaking careers there's only what 35 slots for rubyconf and uh 60 including key, okay. including keynotes yeah a very limited number of slots available and that conference is hard to get into i it took me five years to get accepted to RubyConf, and i speak all of the time yep so regional conferences are how i got my start and i think they're valuable for other people i do miss them we used to have so many five years ago and now there's just a handful and I think some people interpret that as a reflection of the language itself. But I wonder, I guess like you were saying, is it an evolution of the community? I do a lot of regional conferences, not a lot, but I tend to do regional conferences, including ones that like aren't um, like where I'm from because I'm doing speaking. But like DevOps Days, I think, is a great example of a community that's still doing like tons of regional conferences. And I think that what's really interesting for me, like going to them, particularly like going to them in other places and being like an out of town speaker among attendees that are mainly local is kind of an interesting experience um, for me. But it gets me thinking of like, I agree with what Coraline said about speakers getting their start. But I also think that it's like a accessibility thing for folks that like can't afford to go to a conference that's out of town. And so yeah. like a conference comes to your town and like you go. And I've noticed this in other places, but like Buffalo just had our first DevOps days. Um, and I had been doing a couple of DevOps days conferences. And it was kind of neat talking to, like, I didn't know a ton of the people there because Buffalo doesn't have, like, a super tight-knit tech community. But it was mostly local people. And it was mostly local sponsors. And I was, like, surprised by that. And it was a cool experience. And so I think that, like, that is really valuable. And, like, that is something that I think is missing if we're, like, congregating at these bigger events where mostly everyone is traveling. Yeah. So 
I really only know two. I have two like one person anecdotes about this. So, so one is that a local conference organizer who's been doing it for a number of years told me they were struggling to get enough speakers to fill their conference. And another is that organizers just burned out, right? And there wasn't a generation of organizers to replace them. I guess my working theory is that we are potentially responsible for creating a whole new generation of local conference organizers and making it. And here, when I say we, I mean Ruby Central. Uh, as the sort of position as the steward of the community, creating a new generation of conference organizers who can like run those conferences. Because to me, that seems to be the thing that dried up. A thing that I, I've heard from uh, a few people who run or ran these regional conferences is that they weren't really trying to make money, but it was hard to even break even. Yeah. Yeah, I was also yeah. going to bring up money. I've I've been an organizer on a regional conference, and I'm not one of the main organizers, so I don't deal like really heavy in the sponsorship stuff. But I know that it's a worry, and I know that like we didn't have our conference this year because we didn't have the money to have it, and like we kind of went, well, this is still important to us, so like we're going to regroup and start earlier and start looking for sponsors for 2020, but like. In an ideal world, we wouldn't have had to, like, not have our conference in 2019. <laughs> yeah, I think the thing that I have heard that's often really scary is, like, many conferences don't break even. They make a small loss, but they only get really close to it right before the conference happens, if they do break even or, like, make a small profit. And so, like, right up to the deadline, you're, like, looking at a huge financial shortfall, right? And, like, for individuals, that can be extremely scary. Is that something that Ruby Central could potentially help with? I don't know. We'd certainly have to review that. So it sounds like the things that are needed for regional conferences to be sustainable are sponsorship so that they can not feel super stressed out about a financial disaster because they're trying to bring people together to talk about a programming language and yep. is that the main, like, what are the components? Well, I, th I think another thing that got mentioned was lack of speakers. And I think that, like, as someone, as a speaker and someone who, like, I actually really quite like to do small regional conferences in other places. But, like, I can't afford to travel for conferences that can pay a travel stipend to me. And I don't have, like, I haven't been at a company that can, like, help me out. And so, like... It's not that I don't want to do it, and it's not that I begrudge them necessarily for, like, you know, it being in a situation that I know I've been in as an organizer where we, like, don't have money, but it's just kind of, like, unfortunate. Like, I think if more money was there, that could be alleviate some of these problems, even more of these problems than is immediately apparent, potentially. Yeah, we're sort of arriving at this, like, really interesting point, right, which is the Assume there was like financial oxygen such that any organizer knew there would be no financial burden on them whatsoever. Would that change the dynamic? And I, I think, think the, it would. <laughs> yeah. And I think I think the answer is probably yes. Right. Because I know when there's at least one regional conference that I'm thinking of that I just was about to say the name of, but I'm not going to, that spun down essentially because it stopped being financially viable for them to run the conference. It's really interesting. Do you think that the, the DevOps days regional conferences are sustained by having a lot of, you know, developer relations folks and people whose job it is to go to conferences speaking at them? I don't know. I wouldn't be surprised at, because like there's a lot of money sloshing around in that ecosystem. It wouldn't surprise me at all if like the top, you could probably get five to 10 reliable speakers, you know, just because their company will pay for any amount of travel you know, sort of like the, the big, all the big players in DevOps have that travel budget. And like, I guess that's less true. And there are fewer dedicated Ruby developer evangelism teams with budget these days. As someone who speaks at DevOps days conferences, again, I pretty much go to ones where they can pay me a travel stipend because I don't have that. But I think it's possible that my, the money that's going towards my travel could be being kind of bankrolled by other speakers who aren't asking for that financial assistance. And I don't know about that, if that makes sense. 
So how do we get avocados to come to Ruby conferences? <laughs> I feel like what I would prefer over that, and I'm like, I, I mean, I am a developer advocate, so I'm not like <laughs> making fun of the avocado thing, but like, I've talked a little bit about organizing, and I haven't said what conference, and I will. I'm an organizer for Catskills Conf. And what we've tried to do, um, like, particularly, it takes place in the Hudson Valley. I'm not located in the Hudson Valley, um, but most of the organizers are. And they push really hard for, like, local people to be speakers, we don't have a lot of speakers coming in from out of town. I'm coming in from Buffalo, which is a five-hour drive, and I'm usually one of the farthest away people coming, including the speakers. And I think that it's been a good experience overall. I mean, obviously, as I said, we're still struggling with sponsorships and stuff because I think that's just a thing that goes around. But it's been a great event and it's been a good perspective to have people from that community talking about tech but like talking about tech in terms of that community has been I think rewarding for that group of people if that makes sense and I would love to get more people involved in speaking rather than making a point of trying to get the same people over and over in the way that you're describing yeah and i think at the very height of the uh ruby conference regional days there was a little bit more of that right so like i know i used to be able to do 10 to 15 conferences in a year like without even really having to try it all that hard and that was just because they were like hell yeah come give the exact same talk in 10 different cities and i was like cool and but like there are loads of people doing that right there were there were people who i went to four five six conferences within the same year and saw them gave the same talk four five six times and so like i do i do also wonder if it was like lack of growth of local talent and like external talent sort of pushing that out a little bit yeah i, I think it would be unfortunate if the only way to sustain these local conferences is also pushing out local people like local speakers and things like that yeah cool so super upbeat uh way to end (laughs) 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 the podcast i really miss their i love how diverse they were they were you know the cities are all different obviously but they were not all in big uh, convention centers a lot of the venues are cool and unique and just a whole bunch of people talking about stuff that you wouldn't get to see at rubyconf like Coraline was saying so i miss them yeah i mean it was funny. I was just talking to Ernie Miller yesterday and he was lamenting that he feels like his favorite talk to give is not one he could give at a big conference because it's too risky. And I was like, that's such an interesting way of putting it. And then he talked to me a little bit about the idea and I was like, you're right. I would stop you from giving that talk at RubyConf because it would almost certainly go wrong in horrible, horrible ways. And there, there is no backup strategy for that. So yeah, I like, Yes, I agree with you. You've got riskier, more interesting talks, less hermetic. Yeah. Less of the same people speaking over and over and over again. Yep. I love Aaron Patterson, but he speaks at every conference. Yeah. This is balanced by him being very funny, though. That's true. <laughs> but there, But there is a core population of speakers that speak at every major conference, and I, too, miss the quirky, the local flavor, the up-and-coming people. I know for me it was a career changer, and I, I hate the fact that that is closed off to so many people now. Yeah, and I think that career changer point is the one that's perhaps most important, is I don't think I would be where I am today in my career without access to and I, I guess, like, to bring it back, right, speaking at 10 to 15 conferences per year, that put my name in the ears of literally thousands of people that I would otherwise yeah. never never have met, right? Yeah, these, they changed a lot of people's lives, myself included. Oof. Cool, it's even worse now. I'm sorry to have created a big sad energy. <laughs> I'll say something, I'll say something kind of um, a little bit less sad, which is that 
you know, conferences and doing speaking has changed my life too. And like, I kind of am not old enough in the industry to remember some of the things that you are all talking about. I, by the time I started doing conferences, a lot of this was already on the decline and it's kind of sad to like, listen to you all talk about like something that I kind of missed out on. But I think that I think in other ways there's, I don't know. I, I'm having trouble with what I want to say because I'm not the expert, I guess. But, like, I've had a pretty good experience at conferences. And my experience has been probably getting better since I started a few years ago. Like, in that more conferences seem like they care about new speakers and diverse lineups. And I hear some kind of this, oh, the good old days with, like, how conferences used to be and these smaller events and this. I've Like, this isn't the first time I've heard that, but I've also heard a lot of horror stories about how things used to be, and I think that, like, the conference culture that I'm in now, I like it. Definitely has changed. I mean, it was only five short years ago that we had raging debates about whether conferences should have codes of conduct. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. That was a real fight. Yeah. And like, you know, the Ruby Central conferences, we provision gender neutral bathrooms and uh, childcare facilities now completely consistently. Right. And that that certainly wasn't the case five years ago either. Yeah. To build on this and maybe bring it back to a happier place. Maybe maybe it's not like there was this prelapsarian time when the Ruby conferences were very good and, and that's all lost now. Maybe it's just that the industry is changing and we don't have those conferences anymore, but we do have other regional conferences in different, you know, parts of the industry and they're and they're maybe even better than what we had before. Yeah, I was gonna mention something about that because I found that I have shifted from local Ruby conferences or regional Ruby conferences to regional polyglot conferences. And I actually wonder if that might be better because for a long time, the Ruby world was pretty insular. Yeah, I could see that. For myself, I, like for a decade, considered myself a Rubyist. That was like the primary thing for me. And then only in the last five years or so, have I really started to say, I'm an, an engineer who knows Ruby. Yeah. Well, Penelope, it's been an absolute delight to talk to you. I'm so glad you came on the show today. I'm glad. Thank you. Penelope, I'm so glad that you came on the show. It's like so wonderful to have you on and for us to all be able to chat. And it was delightful. So (laughs) thank you so much. And thank you to everyone for listening. If you want to continue with some of these conversations with us, you can always back us on Patreon and that will get you access to our Slack community. Um, all of everyone who's ever been on the show has access to this community and we have great conversations in there and we'd love to have you. Thank you.